You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, where we share our experiences, the ups and the downs of what it's like to be a rules-based investor, and of course, where we also take your questions. So, um, good morning, Jerry. Good afternoon, Moritz. How are you guys doing? Good morning. Good afternoon. Doing great. Yes, doing great. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota today for the college basketball Final Four. UVA, my team, is, is here as well. So, kind of chilly, but um, nice to be here. Fantastic. Good stuff. Um Perhaps also a little bit chilly on the geopolitical front this week compared to uh, previous week. Um, kind of familiar picture in the markets where risk on is back on the agenda. Uh, stocks benefiting, energy benefiting, uh, bonds maybe taking a bit of a breather. Uh, and of course, our friends, the Lean Hawks, uh, that story continues with another 12% rise this week, which we now know is due to an African swine fever which uh, apparently has emerged in China. And just to put things in perspective, I read this morning that they're looking to cull 100 million hogs because of this, which is a pretty big number compared to the total inventory in the US of 74 million. So uh, pretty big, pretty big numbers. Um, I wonder before we jump into our usual format, whether we should dwell uh, just a couple of minutes on last week's um, conversation where, of course, we were uh, joined by uh, Jesse Felder, uh, who very kindly took time out of his weekend to uh, to join us. And I thought, it was an, I thought it was an interesting conversation. I mean, clearly, Jesse is not a uh, systematic investor, um, but I certainly uh, felt that there were a lot of... Um, there are a lot of interesting takeaways when it came to um, his views on on trend following. Um, I mean, uh, one of the <laughs> one of the quotes I really liked, uh, you know, he said something along the lines where, you know, you have to make sure you pay attention to the trend. If it's good enough for Paul Tudor Jones, it's good enough for individual investors. So, you know, clearly, um, you know, embracing um, the things that we do. Um, uh, and, and also, I think he was basically saying that in terms of the, the tools in his toolbox, um, when it came to timing, um, you know, he was definitely looking at uh, trend following because fundamentals uh, are, are not a good uh, timing utility. Um, so what were your takeaways from the conversation, if you, if, if you remember, so to speak? Um, sometimes it can be difficult to remember one conversation from another, but I mean, if you... If you think back, what were your takeaways from uh, from Jesse? One of the things I remember, and I really love that one, is it um, make sure you pay attention to the trend. If trend following is good enough for Paul Tudor Jones, then it must be good enough for me. And it's like, yeah, 100% agree with that. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, and I think that almost regardless of how you approach the markets, probably the biggest mistake that everyone has a tendency to make would be getting out of winning positions too soon right yeah we just have so much regret staying in and watching the profits go away and other people are already out and we look silly in the two trade charts pos positions come to mind uh this week um 
Well, massive profits last year in natural gas didn't end up as positive on my books. Um, and the hogs, hard to get into, slippage, and then crash, and then back to new highs. And then um, palladium, nice trend, crash. Feeble attempt at a rally, maybe closer to back to the recent lows. So each trade is sort of random. You don't know really what to do, and you, you don't want to look silly. But it, in the long run, I think uh, the reason that the computer says you should uh, use longer-term trend following is that it has a tendency to work. And these big sell-offs have a tendency to go back at least a few times and make new highs and keep going. So everyone is faced with that same thing of emotionally getting out of big winners too soon. Uh, I know we had one listener talk about a trade. He was in uh, short, was it yen? and two and a half or two and a three quarters years and they're rare and they're tough but very rewarding absolutely we'll come to that a little bit later as one of the questions um but i think it i mean i think the the also some of my takeaway from from the conversation is the fact that we talk about trend following in a very specific uh way uh the way we implement it you know rules-based uh classical sort of uh, cta style um, but of course, um, I think what Jesse was also alluding to is that trend following can be used in 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 other ways. And I just see here on my screen that there was a quote that he said, uh, which something along the lines, compared to all the possible methodologies an individual investor might use to try and time markets, hashtag trend following is by far the best or one of the top ones, and I think that's that's the the other thing. I mean, of course, we would prefer people convert completely to our way of thinking, the, to our way of implementation uh, of the strategy. But just the core concept of trend following, um, the fact that it can be used uh, in different ways, even if you're not doing trend following exactly how we do it, it still has and it still offers a lot of value. Um, so I thought that was interesting to hear from someone uh, like Jesse. But anyway, um, that was last week. Now today we are focusing on this most recent week, of course. Um, and as usual, uh, Morris, why don't we um, start out and see how um, how the week panned out for for you uh, in the markets and, and so on and so forth? Yeah. Um, well, this this week wasn't all too uh, too good. I think you've just mentioned it, Niels, that you know we had a a big of a breather in the bonds. So the bonds produced uh, quite some losses, about minus three percent uh, for this past week, and like it's across the board, be that gilds, JGBs, ten-year notes, spoons, all of that. You know, I'm long, and and those uh, those markets went down, so that that wasn't good. Um, the equities, I'm. I have a mixed bag of longs and shorts. Uh, so that was balanced. Energies uh, lost a bit of money. The short positions in heating oil and gasoline, they also suffered a bit. A um, little bit of money from short gold and short silver, um, and making money from being long the emissions, uh, which you know came back in, in the last week. Um, but you know, even though it was a minus three percent uh, week, uh, March was overall a good month, uh, more than ten percent in gains. So that's that's positive. 
Sure, very classical kind of a week of, of a bit of correction, a very similar experience uh, that you just mentioned on our side. Um, Commodity-wise, there are only two blue bars I see here in the last week. You know, we, we made some money in cattle and, and coffee. Everything else was red. All the fixed income was in the red. Equities actually did okay for us, um, you know, mixed, but, but overall positive. And currencies did pretty well. Uh, and of course, we know the dollar index is, um, you know, flirting with new highs. It'll be interesting to see if that breaks out, what that might uh, do, uh, not just to the currencies, but uh, potentially to other sectors as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, pretty, pretty quiet overall, I would say. And, and of course, markets have to have, uh, you know, a little bit of time to uh, digest uh, some of the big, big moves we've seen. And of course... Um, that has attracted a lot of attention. Uh, I think in the in the media, I don't think many people had kind of seen uh, interest rates go as low as they are now again. Um, so again, having no opinion about these things sometimes can be a, a great um, a great benefit. But of course, uh, equity is doing really well, up 16, 17% now for the year. Um, we've forgotten all about bear markets um, from December, Jerry. So how is that playing out for you? Pretty well, yeah. Just slowly adding as individual markets become uh, longs and small short positions are usually getting stopped out for losses. So playing the, uh, the single names and taking advantage of the diversification where this year has been, continues to be positive, uh, I left off emissions. So yeah, that was another one that kind of went up, went down, went back up, crashed, going back up now. So, you know, the only thing worse is kind of like doing lots of trades in that area, I think. So giving back is kind of a problem, but sometimes it it's fleeting. So um, that's a, another really good trade. Like the dollar looks good. I'm, I'm, uh, platinum had a big move, something going on in platinum. It was the weakest of the precious metals for a while. But a big up move there this week, uh, short to long, something different. But I'm looking more f- favorable for the markets. They, As I go through the charts there, a lot of low volatility, which is sort of good when the markets sort of just break out and get going. You know, you want the vol to kind of be low, people not that interested. And then uh, some maybe some long commodities in the metals. Hopefully that'll continue. So it looks like some different things are happening in the markets that are, should be positive. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, it does look interesting. Um, so in terms of attracting attention, attracting some uh, love from uh, from from your followers in particular, Jerry, uh, I know you said it's been a quiet week. Um, what um, what did catch people's attention though from your uh, from your activity in, in that space? Pretty quiet week for me on Twitter, but I'll pick out some of the ones that were more popular. This one is about recency bias, and it says recency is a tendency to overweight recent events, trends, and ignore long-term evidence. This results in the opposite of what a disciplined investor should do. Memories can be short, often much shorter than is required to be successful. That's a very good self-serving quote for us (laughs) Trump followers. Yeah, I saw, I don't know where that came from, but uh, I definitely saw, uh, maybe it was in the latest weekly newsletter I get from Annie Duke, that there were also 
she also wrote something along those lines this week. And I think it is important. I mean, I think it is, you know, it's, it's an important feature of what we do um, to help investors deal with these uh, different biases that we have. Even though it's something that maybe um, typical investors don't think about too much, that they're actually battling some really strong forces within themselves when it comes to uh, investing and usually forces that are not beneficial for you as an investor. Um, and um, and that's kind of one of the hidden benefits of just following uh, a rule-based uh, investment strategy, whether it's trend following or something else, that as long as it's rule-based, uh, it really helps you deal with those uh, things. So I think it's an important topic. And everything we do is based upon these long backtest where we look at all the data and we may not really like as what the computers are telling us, but to be longer term, to be patient, to suffer losses, to be more flexible when it comes to open trade, profit drawdowns. But it's not like we're just making this up and we definitely don't think it's worthwhile to concentrate on shorter term performance metrics. So I think it's very important to understand that we have this powerful evidence that's not just with recent data. Another one, which sort of is the same thing, you know, look at long-term performance was uh, over the long run, markets don't exhibit the same tendency to suffer a crash together. Thus, investors shouldn't allow short-term failures to blind them to long-term benefits. Even though it looks like it sometimes that these markets do all kind of crash at the same time and (laughs) Everything goes to one, and the diversification is not really helping very much. You can over-diversify. That's a silly quote. But uh, for for a systematic manager, you can't really over-diversify. But I think, once again, it, you just got to – what works in the markets is suffering some pain, suffering some underperformance. We've talked about that, how it's almost everyone who is an outperformer over the long term has a tendency to be more of a underperformer for longer periods of time. So it's kind of a perverse way of having to deal with the markets, but it does seem to work. Yeah, there was this great article, and I can't remember whether it was something I shared with you guys or you shared with me, but uh, there was this article where a guy had shown visually uh, how markets tend to make a new high and then how long it takes before they make a new high again uh, and so on and so forth. And, And I think people forget that there has been so many periods um, throughout history where equities have gone for years without making a new high. Yet, in in our world, um, we we um, you know we get called out if it takes uh, you know more than a couple of years since since the last new high, uh, which really isn't that long time when you compare to to many markets. I mean, people probably already forgotten that it's six seven years ago gold made a new high. I mean, you know. You know, those new highs, I was just thinking I'd be equally happy if markets make new lows, you know, we're yeah, good I'm point. biased to, uh, to the long side on that. So if markets make new lows, that, that works for me in the same way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Everybody's focused on the highs, it seems. Yeah. Another bias. <laughs> Passive, long only, right? There you have it. Yeah. What else went on, uh, Jerry? It was a lot of tweet Twitter from myself and others back and forth arguing on Twitter about overfitting, curve fitting, things like that. Um, And I'll summarize by, uh, there was a 
quote from uh, I think the Bloomberg article we talked about earlier that said uh, the dynamics of markets evolve so quickly that CTA systems that have been fitted to the past will not be easily valid for the future. My opinion, underscore my opinion, I think that that is, um, it sounds like if you do this great back test that I mentioned earlier that, oh, you know, it's fitted to the past, it won't be valid for the future. But I don't think that's correct. I think uh, maybe a misreading of the quote or I think the quote gives off the wrong impression. I think to some degree when we do these back tests, we choose our parameters 20 by 200, 20 by, uh, 50 by 200, 50 by 250, whatever it is, the trend following entry exits and all the other things. We, Of course, we're looking at what has worked in the past and maybe you'll trade a couple of those entries and exits or a dozen to diversify, but probably mostly medium to long-term trend following probably most highly somewhat correlated to each other. You know, when every system gets in and you ride a trend for two and a half years, you know, the correlation in all those systems is like 100%, right? You have to wait for the exit to sort of see some diversification on your P&L for the trade. I think there is something called overfitting where you try to look at too many of the exact uh, zigs and zags in the markets and your system has too many uh, variables and parameters that it is sort of fitted to the past. So I think a light, gentle uh, approach that looks at past parameters and sees sort of what philosophically works especially if it has one of the key ingredients, which is it has big drawdowns. You know, I think that's like the key. Choose something that has a light touch that keeps you in gear with the trends. It's not trying, to, not trying to have too much precision and really allows for the markets to really fluctuate, your P&L to fluctuate on the trades. So you can have a trade that's two and a half years, you know, if possible, if the trend, major trend stays intact. So I think fitting and overfitting, I'm not an expert, but I believe it's two different things. Yeah, I did see that uh, Twitter exchange with Wayne, uh, and uh, I uh, I think I even left a comment, uh, you know, uh, in during that conversation a little bit going, I mean, and main being a little bit, uh, you know, devil's advocate here. But I mean, if we if we if we all agree that nobody knows what the future will bring, I mean, how much overfitting can you really make? Uh, or do I mean you can only do and but I think another way of thinking about it is that often I think uh, we are um, I don't know if criticized is the right word or, or maybe people are skeptical about a strategy like ours where you kind of look at at the past and then you um, you know uh, as as to help you uh, create a strategy but I mean. I, I wonder if Warren Buffett is doing anything different than that, right? I mean, he believes in a certain approach. He believes in in, in value investing. Um, so he obviously has experience from using a strategy like that. And and I'm sure that's what he bases his, his philosophy on, right? And we do the same. Um, we just don't get kind of the same positive uh, um, feedback loop. Um, for for doing that, sticking with something that has worked for us in the past, uh, so I, I do feel that there is a little bit of a a double standard. And I know you mentioned Jerry this uh, uh, Bloomberg article that came out after our conversation last week, so it's kind of an update on performance, not from the same guy who wrote the article on the March on March first. The trend following, you know, was failing. These were two other journalists writing about uh, trend following, maybe mainly to give a performance update on a strong march. But 
But uh, even though, um, you know, it is true, it's just one month or a couple of months where trend following is kind of done well again. Um, there wasn't a lot of love in that article either, I thought, when you read between the lines. And maybe we don't need, as, as you and I talked about before we started the recording, maybe we don't deserve a, uh, a pat on the back just yet. Um, but, um, but I do find that there often is a bit of a bias to, um, and, you know, same thing about, you know, the whole point about black box, you know, what we do is a black box as if something is wrong inside our models and it's kind of, we, we need to keep it hidden. I mean, some of the most uh, loved strategies by investors, uh, you know, uh, offered by, uh, the Renaissance technologies and 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 these type of firms, and even what goes on inside a bank. I mean, how transparent are they uh, compared to what we do? I think we we are much more transparent uh, than than that. Um, so, anyways, not sure why I went down that path, but there we are. Uh, like Moritz, do you have a theory on this fitting and overfitting backtesting? Well, I think we uh, we all agree that what what we need is a broad brush. Um, well, let me say I need that. I've never been too good with a sharp pencil on those trading systems. Um, um, and you know, I don't want to say that you know it's impossible to do it with a sharp pencil and the microscope and get all those little fluctuations out of the market and then make profit from them. Maybe it's just me not being able to do it, not smart enough to do it. But um, so I need that broad brush that works with, um, you know, a small number of parameters um, in a relatively basic and robust way across all those markets. We've said that many, many times again. And then, you know, we just diversify as much as we can to create the stability. Now, that obviously then reduces the the risk of curve fitting anything, um, but again and again, I mean, let's just be honest about that, you know, being able to test a strategy, um, a system, a hypothesis, if you will, with past data, that's extremely valuable compared to not being able to test it, you know, discretionary manager isn't able to test a thing. So it's just, you know, um, you know, the, the view of the manager on, you know, the future world and, and how markets will move, but there's no history on how successful that could have been. I just, you know, I, I just cannot come to terms with um, with a strategy that works that way. There's always a bit of risk of fitting. But what's the uh, what's the counter argument? I mean, what's what's better than having a history and a sample and something to work with that, you know, at least is in a certain way reliable? Um, I, you know, that, that's, that's what I do and it'll never change. There we are. I know the, maybe Niels, you want to come to that question on the, on the vault curve fitting later on in this, in the, you know, in, in, in our chats and, and then, you know, I spared for that one, but I'm not sure. Do you, do you want to speak about that later or is that something for now? Which, um, is that one of the questions we received from uh, our audience? No, it was about, uh, you know, vault control being curve fitting and things like this. Okay. Well, feel free to. Uh, we have no formal agendas, as, yeah. as as our listeners well know. No, I was just thinking maybe this is what 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 brought this up, and um, you know the. It, it, I, th I don't think we know we're using this vault control in, in the way that you know people think of vault control, but using past uh, volatility 
um, past fluctuations in whatever way you want to calculate those, be that a volatility number, so that's a standard deviation, or kind of like more like a range or an average true range. Yeah, I mean, there are differences in all of that, but at the end of the day, it's it's a measure of how strongly your market has fluctuated in the past. This, you know, using this input um, to, you know, come up with a position size for the next trade of which you don't know how long you're going to be holding it for. You know, by the way, we'll come to that later. It can be many years. And if that's the case, then that's normally a great trade. Um, I don't see where any of that fits my curve to pass data. It's just, um, maybe I want to hear your opinion on that. But, you know, in, in, in my type of the way I use vol uh, in, in my trend following trading system, the historical volatility of a market is unable to fit anything, you know, uh, in, in that system. Right. I, I know exactly where you're coming from now. And it, it was a, a discussion uh, we had uh, offline during the week. Um, I think the the origins of this came from, uh, and I'm not entirely sure where it came from, um, but it's this thing about if the so so volatility um was probably more originally developed as a way to measure risk right but over time and this is not so true for trend followers because trend followers has used volatility all the way back from you know the 70s and the 80s volatility has always been part of how we size positions but Nowadays, it seems like every single strategy under the sun uses volatility as an input to size positions. So I think the discussion and the question is, is there a risk now in the whole system because everybody uses the same input to a large degree when it comes to um, the risk management? So I think that was how I... Yeah, understood the debate, um, and and funnily enough, funnily enough, I think on that front, uh, trend followers has been far ahead of the curve here, because it's it's not that we I don't think we're doing things any different really than we did it thirty forty years ago. But I think but I think it is true if you look at the whole spectrum, you know, risk premium, risk parity. Uh, you know, long short equity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, all of those strategies uh, today, uh, including, I'm sure, a lot of other ones that I can't think of right now, um, you know, uses volatility to a large extent to manage the risk. Yeah, and you know, the if if you look at vol control and you use historical volatility to um, to manage a portfolio to a certain level of target vol. We've spoken about all those passive flows and, you know, the, the, the flows which vol control and risk parity and, you know, all of those strategies create. And there may be a risk with that, right? If the market turns around and then those flows which have built up, maybe, you know, want to all exit through the same narrow door at the same point in time, which then creates volatility itself. The, the, the point I also got from that message was kind of like every time you're, it's kind of like the dog eating its tail, uh, you're using past volatility to forecast future vol or using past data to forecast future data. I mean, that's what we do. 
uh, in our case, vol is just the risk input or a part and an element of a money management and risk management system and position sizing system. But if, if you follow that logic, I'd say that every time you're using past data, you could say it's curve fitting, right? I mean, that's, that's the input that we're working with. Uh, we just have to be careful that we don't overfit it and we give it too many parameters so that it starts negatively impacting our sample size. Yeah, I mean, um, for, for me, that's two dis- different discussions, right? Because I, I, yeah. I agree with you. There's obviously a debate whether you're fitting or overfitting. That's one thing, using historical data. But the other thing is just generally speaking, I mean, is the whole world now doing the same thing, using vol as an input in the risk management? And therefore, as you rightly say, we could end up everyone running to the exit at the same time, creating much bigger uh, you know, problems. And maybe that's what we've seen a little bit of happening in 2018, we because we get these spikes of volatility now, and maybe that's a sign of a lot of things being driven by volatility, uh, and and therefore the you know the the off wind of positions when things like that happen um, is is much stronger than it, it used to be. I don't know. I have to, I don't have a strong opinion. I'm just. Sure. And maybe nobody knows. I mean, there is this, you know, global short vol trade going on, which we hear Chris Cole speak about. And it all sounds very logical and clear. And maybe, you know, that's that's really happening out there. It's just I wanted to, you know, just speak for us as, you know, systematic trend followers who don't use, at least I don't use daily vol control and things like this because I don't see the sense behind it. I'm using it to size a certain position. Once that position's up and running, it's up and running until it's, you know, hitting an exit. Um, that's it. So so I don't really see myself in that, you know, vault control camp that's running a global short vault trade. Sure. Jerry, what are your thoughts? I agree with uh, what Moritz said. Um, we have a simple way of deciding how many yen we're going to trade and how many crude we're going to trade. And we want to have sort of the same risk and the same expectation and the same juice in the trade. So, you know, we use these uh, methods we've been using for 30, 40, 50 years. And then we size the trade you know, we buy 10 uh, crude and we sell 20 yen with sort of the same trade, kind of the same expectation. And then all of a sudden, a month or two later, if the trades are successful. They're, the vols are totally different, uh, you know, and it, and it's the positions are totally out of whack and we don't really do too much about it. So <clears throat> we're close to the entry when we use that uh, ATR approach and so it's unlikely that it's going to be a big spike down and we're going to get in trouble for trading larger because the vol was low. But I think after, you know, what gets us in trouble is two years later when the S&P hits a very low vol level after a huge uptrend, well, now the, the constant vol tar- targeting requires us to buy even more, maybe buy more than we've ever had before that we bought two years ago at the entry. And then, of course, Another period rolls around shortly thereafter and the market crashes. And so now all of this crazy forced selling has to occur. So I think, you know, that is a bummer and it hurts the markets. It's not safe. I've never been against uh, reducing positions. You know, if you want to take something off because the vol has increased 10 times. I had a trade once where it, it was, you know, after just a few months, the vol was 10 times as large. Uh, I just want to put the trade on. Yeah, so scale back a little bit. But I do think it's particularly worrisome to start increasing trades. And that, it does seem like that is a little bit of prediction going on. And I think this was the point people were making. 
you're you're taking care of today. You're scratching today's itch. But you're gonna get, you could be in huge trouble in a week or two, and have to start dumping massive positions. So there's so much wrong with that idea that uh, it, you know it's two or three different shows. I think <laughs> very true. How about some questions? Keep them coming. Yes, absolutely. Good reminder, by the way. Thanks for the thanks for the reminder, Moritz. Um, to all of you listening, we love uh, we love getting questions from you. So please uh, keep them coming by sending them to info at toptradersonplug.com. Um, that is uh, the best place to get them uh, in the queue. Now, the first uh, question today is from uh, John John Z. Um, it's a two-part question uh, regarding risk, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, so a good segue into this. Um, are you always 100% invested with your AUM or do you keep a certain percentage in cash at all times? In one of your past episodes, Jerry talked about pulling back some of his 25% allocation to fixed income. With 25% devoted to just one sector of the futures market, it made me think that you guys might be fully invested at once. I was just wondering how you look at using your entire equity. So, John, uh, I'm sure Jerry will comment on that, but uh, just as a maybe laying the foundation, um, because CTAs uh, are known for just trading futures, um, we actually don't use much of the actual cash uh, for uh, making our investments and having the positions on that we want. So when we talk about percentages of uh, allocation, we, we mainly talk about risk. We allocate risk. We don't allocate cash. Um, so if we want to be, you know, if we are 100% invested and 25% of that is towards the fixed income sector, for example, it's 25% of the risk. That may mean that we're only spending 20% of the cash as margin for holding on to these futures positions and the rest uh, actually sits in cash or ca cash equivalent uh, instruments. Um, so, so just to clarify that, we, unlike people who um, uh, trade cash instruments, uh, we, we have a little bit of a different uh, um you know, approach to this. But anyways, uh, Jared, do you want to talk uh, more about these things in terms of that? Or It's really difficult to, to explain it. You did a, you did a very nice job. <clears throat> but it's almost like we're doing these trades, these bets, without regard to, with, that, with no constraints. You know, it's, it's not in any way correlated or limited to our AUM and our, the money in our account. Only to the extent that if we traded too large, it would show up in the daily returns as being very high and too too high. You know, so I think a typical daily return for us is plus or minus, you know, seventy five basis points. So we're we're taking these trades as they come without reg with no constraint, without regard almost to do I have the cash? Can I afford this trade? Allocate it has nothing to do with that. So. It's hard to explain, but... Yeah, I mean, it's very true and it's a good point. And I think that this is also where um, people may be looking from the outside and only starting to learn about uh, sort of managed future CTAs can get a little bit confused because if they look at the, uh, the value of all the contracts we hold, clearly they're more than, 
you know, the value of the total cash we manage. And, and, and sometimes it's six times uh, what, we, what we have, what we manage. Uh, sometimes it's three times what we manage. I mean, it really depends on, as Jerry says, how many trades are we getting into because in theory, we should be able to get into every single signal we get uh, within certain risk constraints that we have on the overall portfolio. Um, but it's sometimes uh, also something that causes a lot of uh, concern uh, from investors, the fact that you quote-unquote use leverage, um, which we do, um, but we manage the risk. I mean, we that's the only thing we can really do. I mean, uh, this is very important, I think, when you think about trend following and what we do as a, as a uh, you know, as our fundamental core belief, and that is we have no control over returns, but we do control risk. So that's really what we mainly do. We're risk managers first and foremost, and we then take whatever performance we can get from the markets, uh, you know, in within the constraint of our risk management. So, but John goes on, and so maybe if there, just, uh, if I could just comment yeah. on comment on that, I would say that there's a couple of reasons why it sounds shocking that our AUM is a lot less than the notional value of all the positions, but I think it's important to sort of give you an indication of why that's the case because we're being very um, responsible. Uh, it's, you know, I, I often use this analogy that <clears throat> you can take a Ferrari and you can go very fast, but it still does go 50 miles an hour as well. So you have this freedom and this ability to really go fast and use lots of leverage or no, you don't have to. And by and large, most CTAs are pretty boring with their use of leverage and it's the lack of trends or whatever that's causing the losses, not the the leverage. But the reason we can get away with a position uh, more having more on more notional value than AUM is because of I think two things. One is a lot of the markets that we trade in are very low vol, and in order to get any profit, you have to leverage currencies and interest rates, let's say, and to get them to be equivalent to stocks. You know, and now you, there's similar bet, the same bet. You have to leverage up and maybe, you know, sort of leverage down the equities. And then number two is we're very diversified. So we're taking advantage of a quite a bit of diversification, longs and shorts and currencies, commodities, interest rates, bond, uh, stocks. So if it was stock only, oh, no way. You would have to trade. You could not use very much leverage. But we're taking all of this into consideration and the back test uh, is saying, yeah, here's the sort of leverage you can use. And not get into too much trouble. And if it gets too hot and heavy, just uh, cut back and, and uh, make it less. Maybe to put some, uh, some numbers to that so people get the perspective, say if you have, you know, 100 million of, of assets, um, it's not uncommon for CTA to run that as a 300 or even 400 uh, million notional account if you take the sum absolute of all the notional contract values, just to, you know, to, to make that, that relation clear. One of the things I'd, I'd like to add there, Niels, on the uh, using all of the AUM, we've just, you know, we, we trade futures contracts uh, for the most part. And and so everything we just said is is on the futures. I think there, there may be some traders out there who don't use futures, who try to implement um, trend following strategies using single stocks, ETFs, cash instruments in general, right? And then there's also that dependency on you know, what type of broker are you working with? Are you trading that on margin? Then it's kind of like equivalent to doing the futures trading that we've just uh, spoke about or 
if you uh, if you're not trading on margin, if you really have to, if, if you know the account size is is the limit of the money that you can work with, then obviously that puts a lot of constraints on um, on the way you need to build your system, and and then it's entirely plausible that you may uh, use all of your money to build a trend following trading system. Yeah, and I think another good indication uh, for for people to to be aware of at least is the fact that throughout you know one, two, three, four decades for for some of the firms that uh, that we represent, um, you know, very often uh, you 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 see a very clear picture in terms of yeah, when there's a drawdown, it's it it usually gets to a more or less the same level, um, which is an indication of how how much attention we pay to uh, managing the risk. And, you know, we accept there's going to be downside, um, but we spend a lot of time uh, making sure that it's not unlimited downside, despite the fact that we use leverage. Uh, you could you could say that the losses, I mean, let's let's just take an example. Um, the, the NASDAQ managed to lose about 80% without leverage in 2002. Uh, CTAs who use leverage never get near that amount. So talk about risk management. I think it's important to put these things in, in perspective. Now, John goes on uh, on the topic of risk um, with a second question. He says, I've read and also listened to numerous professional traders speak uh, of the only they only risk 1% or 2% per trade. What I never read or ever heard was the total amount of risk that is a good general rule of thumb. If a trader risks 1% per trade and has 10 positions on at one time, uh, is he not effectively putting 10% of his equity at risk at once, especially if some of those positions are in a very correlated, in very correlated markets? It's very easy to have 10 losers in a row, especially if they're correlated. Let's say in my example, you have three positions in currencies, two positions in grains, one, two positions in soft, two in fixed income, and one in energy. Could diversification of this sort be the very reason for big drawdowns? Um, and then he goes on to ask, what is general uh, a good rule of thumb in terms of total risk, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. I think you guys know what, where he's coming from, so maybe you can share your thoughts on this. And and by the way, it's a great question. Yeah, um, I like that question. And uh, you know, one of the things that he just put into the question is makes it clear that two percent risk per trade probably isn't the right number. It's far too high because you're running exactly that risk. You have correlated positions that move at the same time, and it just um, amplifies your risk, your portfolio risk, massively. So. Even even one percent is probably at the higher end of things, um, and you know more like you know fifty basis points or something like that could be could be more balanced. The important uh, thing here is to you know have diversification, and not only trade uh, the petroleum markets and then be surprised that they are positively correlated and they move at the same time, or only trade the bond markets and you know have the same effect. So you want to have, you know, equities in there and, you know, like Jerry with all the diversification, even on the single stocks, um, you know, get more out of that equity diversification, um, the bonds, the interest rates, the currencies, the commodities, massive diversification benefits from the commodities and then long and short, right? And yes, theoretically, uh, theoretically, you could still have um, correlated moves 
in all of those markets, even with the diversified positions you have on, it's just very unlikely for that to happen. So, you know, but, but it, it could happen. And having 2% risk on per trade then certainly is kind of like a killer number, far too high. So probably 50 basis points, give or take, you know, 75, 25, all of that, I think, you know, can work. But 2% is, is very high. Yes, that we know. And that we can explain very simply. But the rest is pretty complicated. Uh, I'll just throw out some things like um, you're putting these trades on over months and months and months, you know. So it's difficult to put on 10 trades in one day, maybe if, you know, if you're not t- paying attention to the correlations of energy, precious metals, grains, but a diversified portfolio is built over many months in many different entries over long periods of time. And how we sort of define this is if it goes against me and I get stopped out, I'm going to lose 25 or 50 basis points. Okay, so so then you can come in one day and and someone will ask you, well, how's performance today? Well, everything is down. I'm getting crushed. Oh, bummer. Well, not not really because I'm up like 20% for the year. It's all profit give back. So it's a bummer, but it, it does happen. So it's far different than the question, which is, uh, well, what if you have to put on 10 trades in a short period of time and you're risking 1%? Yeah, yeah, of course. So it's all in the back test. Look at it. Um, I like to sort of make it almost impossible for me not to be able to afford from a risk management point of view to do the next trade. That's what I think is so important to remember is the back test is wonderful. It's perfect. It's great, but it does all the trades. So set up your money management and limit your uh, loss per trade, your, your max loss. With that in mind, you know, if I'm risking 1%, can I really do all the trades that come around? Probably not. You've got choices to make. You don't want to make choices. The computer took every trade, trade smaller, risk 10 basis points, 20 basis points, whatever it takes. So when you do every trade, you don't, you're not in some sort of uh, risk crisis. Uh, now, volatility crisis, we're making good money, uh, lots of open profit trades. Uh, they're, they're really profitable. The trends are great. You're going to have some fluctuation, two different things. Absolutely. Um, and I'm, you know, there will be many more discussions about risk and risk management. We appreciate the uh, the question, John, and and also uh, we appreciate the nice comments you have in your email to us, uh, which um, have noted. Now the next question comes from uh, Woody. Woody uh, has a couple of questions. So. Woody um, deals on more with the investors um, who I think are more used to uh, ETFs than perhaps futures. Uh, So the question goes, would love to hear more about the pros and cons of using managed futures in ETFs. Uh, The least popular for the reason I'm not sure of probably has to do with needing a benchmark of, and then compared to using them in an institutional mutual fund and of using them in a hedge fund. So I asked Woody to clarify that question a little bit. Um, and he says, all I know is that A, they're offered, and I guess these are managed future strategies, for example, from Wisdom Tree. I'm not 
familiar with them specifically. Uh, and they're widely unpopular relative to managed futures in a mutual fund. Ah, okay, so it's the whole ETF uh, versus mutual fund uh, debate um, and also private fund. So it's more about the structure of the product that people would invest in. Um, and of course, there is some... Uh, we talked a little bit about this with Meb Faber when he was on, um, because clearly if you can offer something that is both, uh, you know, prudent uh, for the investor, but also easy to access, like an ETF, uh, that would be useful. But I can't remember if Meb talked about why uh, in an ETF it wasn't that easy to to do a pure kind of trend-following strategy. Do you remember, guys? Or do you have an opinion about this? No, no, I don't. Okay, Jerry, you have a you have a mutual fund in the U.S. Is there a reason why mutual funds is, which is where all the CTAs seem to be going that route, if they if they want to offer their trend following strategies in, in to U.S. Uh, retail investors rather than ETFs? Uh, although there are maybe one or two ETFs out there now. It probably has something to do with the way the additions are handled, where the, there's I think a market maker who has to go ahead and grab the positions and hedge and make a market and then buy the cocoa and the coffee and the, so, you know, some of these liquid commodities. It's the hassle of doing that, I think. is. Um, but some people have pulled it off, you know. Uh, and frankly, I think, you know, honestly, the, probably the ETFs are a lot cheaper for, for investors and mutual funds are just fine. You know, you get a little bit extra fee, so it's probably not a huge interest in uh, turning my mutual fund into a ETF for that reason. Then Woody goes on um, and it's maybe a little bit difficult to answer some of these questions um, but but it's a, he says uh, liquid alts uh, haven't seen a bear market. Uh, will they suffer from a big bank run uh, in the face of a crisis because of their daily liquidity? So that's I think is a relevant question because we saw a bit of that in 2008. And then he goes on and say, do you really need leverage and concentrated position sizing to get the degree of convexity we all want from managed futures? So I think those are great questions. Um, Moritz, Jerry, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Otherwise, I'm happy to jump in. Well, on the uh, uh, liquidity and, and, you know, the funds being used as an ATM, like you said, some of that is what we saw in uh, 2008 and 2009 during the global financial crisis where the CTAs became the ATM um, because other uh, other assets were losing money and investors needed liquidity and they could find it with, you know, managed futures traders. Um, so could, you know, could there be something impacting the liquid all funds? Yes, of course. I mean, if there is demand for cash, uh, people need to get out of positions, uh, need to liquidate their holdings, then, you know, they may liquidate those liquid outs too. But I don't have a crystal ball on that. Just the possibility is definitely there, right? No doubt about that. The convexity, um, I, I heard the uh, concentrated positions to create convexity. I don't think we need to do that. I don't think we need concentrated positions to create convexity, whatever the definition of convexity here is. But I, I assume that the the uh, the link is is meant toward the um, uh, kind of like straddle type of payout, or you know CTA trend following systems performing well during times of um, uh, you know longer term crises or, or or market dislocations, things like this, right? 
I, I don't need concentrated positions for that. I just need a diversified portfolio, which will then, as the trends emerge, uh, react in, in a certain way, uh, but stay diversified. Anything you want to add to that, uh, Jerry? I don't think so. Sure. I would just add, uh, Woody, that 2008 clearly uh, was uh, a point in time where I think a lot of investors um, made use, as as Moritz was saying, made use of the daily liquidity that they could get from their managed futures um, and trend-following strategies. Um, And I think today, and this is obviously purely guesswork from from my side, but I think today that there is even more money locked into investments uh, that are have even less liquidity than they had back in 2008 um, because there's been such a search for for yield, meaning people have bought, uh, you know, more junk bonds and more, you know, whatever they're called, leverage loans and all sorts of stuff, more private equity. Um, just to to get a a return, um, and I think sometimes maybe it's not really. Um, I mean, we 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 sometimes joke a little bit about that everybody loves private equity um, because it has such a smooth return uh, equity curve. Um, well, because they don't have to make mark to market um, on their positions, and if they did, it would be probably as volatile as uh, trend following. Um, and I think sometimes people forget the benefit of, I mean, they, they're, you know, again, of course, I'm talking my own book here, but um, what we deliver, and maybe we don't always deliver the best performance, I'll be the first to admit that, but what we deliver in terms of other things, in terms of diversification, and not least in terms of liquidity, not just liquidity to the investors, but liquidity in the markets to other participants. I think it's hugely underappreciated. Um, so, but I, I, I think what you're saying is that yeah, will there be a bank run on on, on liquid strategies? Doesn't really matter whether it's managed futures. Any liquid strategy in a really bad crisis will suffer uh, redemptions uh, without a doubt. And you know, the good thing is, last time it happened, um, you know, managed futures managers were there for their investors and. And we delivered the liquidity they needed. Um, that's part of the the role. As much as we hate doing it, so to speak, and see them um, leave, um, then that's that's it's it's the client's money, and they can always have it back. Of course. Um, final point: um, Woody asked if there is really a disadvantage of using blue chip managed futures mutual funds, meaning the the bigger ones, uh, obviously, like uh, the one Jerry has. Um, also, we have a, a mutual fund uh, in the US. Um, you know, these funds touch so many markets and managed futures are not really heavily used anyway. Thus, can asset bloat really be a concern? Um, I can't speak for, for Jerry and, and, and Moritz, of course, but in my opinion, I don't see any reason why uh, there should be any concern about some of these strategies becoming uh, becoming too big, uh, as you know, for the foreseeable future. Any views on that, uh, Jerry Moritz? Or uh, well, I think uh, is there a problem with too many people trend following, too many CTAs? Maybe I don't know. I, I don't know if we've come down on that. I I can't imagine that it's not sort of it's it's an issue, I suppose, with lots of people. 
And these mutual funds are just knockoffs of the normal program. So if a large manager with $25 billion had a $500 million mutual fund, it probably would trade Parapasu to the overall trading uh, program. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a problem or not a problem, but it's, you're not escaping it by getting into a mutual fund. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and and clearly there are more people who follow trends today, even if they don't want to admit them or call, or call themselves a trend follower. I agree with that, that I think there is some, you can be concerned about those things, but I, I don't think necessarily that that's, you know, we're at a stage where that, uh, you know, hurts performance. I still think it can hurt, uh, it can, it, it can, it can push maybe, um, when certain uh, reversals happens, it can certainly create uh, some extra volatility. But you could also argue the other way, and that is that the more people who follow trends, the more the the longer these trends could run, and that that's a benefit. So it may change the the shape of the of the performance. I don't think you can conclude that it makes performance worse or better uh, that you have more people. And I still think that overall. Uh, certainly, if you look at the official industry of trend followers or, or CTAs, I mean, it's been at 350 billion for I don't know how long, even though market liquidity and volume has gone up significantly over that period of time. And and to a large extent, we're only at 350 billion because Bridgewater is included in that number. Uh, if you take Bridgewater out, we're significantly smaller. And I don't really know that Bridgewater is a trend follower per se. But wouldn't you say that that's the opposite of what David Harding said. Trend following is too competitive. There's too many trend followers. Uh, it's time to move on to something else. It's, well, I still, yeah. It's fine, but I, mean, I just want to, you know, we, we, we disagree or you disagree with him, but I think that's exactly, and, and, and I think lots of people, even people who still invest, they say, yeah. And, uh, you know, you, and you can't discount. I mean, you, you spend, even if, when we, if we have trends and you spend years or, one year, two years, depending upon your look back in these trends. And at the very end, this big crash comes because of all targeting or too many trend followers trying to escape at the same time. That trade is way less than it would have been in the 90s or the 80s. And so, okay, so most of the time, there's no impact. We're all going along happily, merrily along, buying, riding these trends. But it, yeah, it can all get screwed at the very end. So you could say, oh, bummer. But that's the whole business, though. It doesn't work as well as it used to, hardly work at all. <clears throat> I don't think we've had enough good trends historically, like we historically have, to sort of make that call now. But many, many people are making that call. I agree with that. And, 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 and meaning I agree that a lot of people are making that call right now. Uh, my, my thoughts, uh, sort of just you know trying to answer it straight away, is... Why would trends in general be any different uh, today than they were 20 years ago? Why, why fundamentally would trends be different? But well, I, I one of the yeah, I don't think, one of the reasons I don't think yeah. that's what we're saying. They're not. Now we, we could have a few extra little breakouts that are fake because they're running the stops on the breakouts, and a lot of people trying to get in, and and the market in 2019 would not have made that breakout. In 1995. That's a bummer. Okay, we take a small loss, our win percentage is a little bit less. Now, 
for the next two years in that trend, no change. Okay, you're right. There's no change. No one's saying there is a change fundamentally. It's worse than that. Do you mean to tell me just by screwing up the entry and taking a little bit of that profit away and having a slightly less win percentage, and at the very end, the market getting totally crushed with everyone trying to get out, that overall that trend is very very little changed, but now all of a sudden we're not able to make very much money from it. It's exactly what I'm saying. It's just way too subtle. It's And you can have trends, better trends, but if those two factors are in there, we've already had to adjust materially with, in my opinion, the recognition of this phenomenon by having to become super long-term. And so, okay, great. I'll be super long-term. It'll be more fluctuation. It's a slightly worse investment. There's more vol in the trends. But at least, you know, there'll be trends. Yes, but it does matter almost exclusively what happens when it when it turns around. And like, you know, some of these trends like um, palladium, it's thin market, let's say. But, you know, um, I don't think you can discount the fact that a lot of the stocks that are very liquid can get crushed when everyone goes through the door at the same time. And it screws up the entire trading system. No, I and I agree with that. And I think that's why when I, uh, and, 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 you know, I've been... Uh, saying this before, when I hear someone like a David Harting saying he doesn't think that trend following is as profitable as it, as it used to be, I think that is true. But I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it means that all trend following uh, approaches uh, have become less profitable. That's point number one. Two, I think um, I think there is a limit, and I've always maintained that there is a limit to how much one single manager can manage in trend following successfully. I, I truly believe that. I don't think it means that you can't have, so let's just say that that's a billion dollars. So you, you maybe you can't as a single manager trade 25 billion, but could you have 25 managers of a billion being successful? I think you could. But I think it's harder if you get to that size of some of these programs because you lose diversification. And I think trend following, it's it's underrated in terms of the importance of trading all of these markets. If you just end up doing trend following in stocks alone or currencies and bonds and stocks that are highly correlated at times, especially during a crisis, I completely agree with you, Jerry. We're going to end up giving back too much of the profits when the reversal comes. But... On the other hand, it is those big managers who are forced to do that that are attracting all the AUM. And that is that is why a lot of investors are disappointed, in my opinion, with the results they're getting from their managers because they pick the big ones. I like that. Although I would just be a little, I would disagree a little. If I yeah, sure, sure. had the $25 billion and I was alone trading the $25 billion versus the 25 <laughs> managers with $1 billion, sure. I, I would take my time. I would not cause the big sell-off. I would say sell five more, sell 10 more. There's not anything on the bid today. Uh, well, then don't do the trade. So I would be disciplined because I have all the money. I'm going to screw myself if I do these indiscriminate buys and sells. Now, if it's 25 individual managers with a billion each with no idea, they're competing, you know, they're with no idea what other people necessarily are actually going to do, exactly do, then this stampede can take off. And you can have people acting in their own self-interest, but kind of screwing it for everyone else. 
my, my, my point with that example is just to say, if you have 25 managers, there's a likelihood that they're not going to be doing exactly the same. So the entry days and the entry and exit days will be slightly different. But if you have one big manager, for example, then their systems will generally, unless they spread it out so so much, um, you know, there, there could be a little bit more pressure. Where I do think there is a problem, and, and where there is definitely something that may have changed, um, not to say it can't be overcome, because, you know, if I look at, you know, inside our own firm, I, I you know, I definitely see um, that this is not necessarily something that has deteriorated our returns, at least. Um, but I will say this whole wish for, um, or, or this whole wave of, of now the bank suddenly and, and, and everyone under the sun can do trend following or, you know, and it's just another factor and, and we can do it for nothing. It doesn't cost anything. Of course, that has put a lot of money doing something that looks similar to what we do. Um, and that may change things, but I still think you can find um, managers who are able to to cope with that. I don't, and and then of course the other factor I think we have to take into this discussion is, well, maybe it's just a ten year period um, where performance maybe have been a little bit uh, below um, average. It doesn't, and, and and we know a lot of that performance below average has come from the fact that there is no risk free rate of return. Uh, you know, if you add back another 5% of risk-free rate of return that we had in the 90s, do our returns look that different from the 90s? I'm not so sure they do. Um, so there are many small factors we have to take into account uh, when we analyze that. But it is an important debate and, and um, yeah. I love listening <laughs> to you guys. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's an important debate it's super and important. nobody has the firm answer and the, the final conclusive answer on that because it's impossible to have it, right? It's just about our own beliefs at the end of the day. Uh, and I just would say that if you would have argued the opposite, if you would have taken my argument, Niels, I would have taken yours. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It, you can, I don't know. But yeah. don't tell me it can't happen. Oh, yeah. Exactly. You know, that's all I'm saying. So, yeah, yeah it's that's the bottom line is um, there, there's here are the sides, here are the arguments. I'm not really sure. Because if I was sure, if I really, if I was doing more than just rhetoric and arguing a point and debating, I wouldn't be in trend following any longer. You know, if I really, if I thought that that was true, but it can be true. It cannot be ignored. And there's no evidence that it's not true or that it is true. Yeah. But not enough for me anyways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but, but it's fascinating to me that one of the, the big improvements that we made on our side was relating to exits, right? So we actually spent a long time figuring out how can we do better exits? And and maybe perhaps part of what we've seen in terms of maintaining uh, our long-term returns, even though it's been a difficult period, has to do with the fact that maybe we have found some ways of of uh, dealing better with that scenario that that you describe, and I, which I can't disagree with. I mean, I think there is an impact on all of this. Um, but maybe next time, Jerry, we'll just reverse the roles and I'll take your side, you could take my side. <laughs> exactly. One thing to, uh, yeah. to add there, and you know, we touched on that prior to this uh, to this chat, there are some CTAs making new all-time highs yeah. without going into the details. But, you know, it, it's not all that, you know, it's no longer working and, uh, you know, the what was the Bloomberg article? They Failing. Did, it's failing. Failing and looking back on past data doesn't work. I mean, uh, yeah, sure, difficult environment, but um, 
Uh, I just want to highlight there are, uh, you know, a handful of firms or even more than a handful of firms making new highs. So there you go. There we are. Good stuff. We've got another question from uh, Brian. Brian has a few things that uh, sprang to mind upon hearing our uh, episode number 28. And it actually has to do with uh, returns and sharp and all of that. Um, and and Brian talks about, or he asks, um, why do investors use the sharp ratio at all, considering returns follow a non-normal distribution? Um, he also asks, if you don't define volatility as risk, then why again would you use sharp ratio? And then finally he says, when it comes to sharp ratio in general, isn't it the higher the number, the better? Question mark. Why such praise for one sharp performance? Granted, 15% returns is fantastic, but wouldn't it be even more impressive if it was coupled with a three sharp? I think it refers to uh, a comment that you made, Jerry, uh, when we talked about Harding, and you referred to it as a 15% return with a one sharp. Uh, putting him in his own class. I think that's where it came from. Um, oh, well, I, yeah. And he, that, a quote from him, <clears throat> and yeah. I didn't verify the numbers, but uh, I, you know, just said, if that is true, you know, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, you know, it could be a situation where he, I mean, God, he knows as much as me times what? Times 10. So he, you know, he understands. He, the, Winton has a paper out there about don't look at the sharp, I think. Okay. Uh, or the limitations of a sharp. I read it years ago. So if, if you could build a systematic approach with trend, and, you know, we all agree with the critique of the sharp ratio, it's silly. And, uh, <clears throat> but you build this without regard to paying attention to, of your own internal, choosing the systems and how you're going to trade. You know, it's not unusual for someone to say, I chose these systems. I'm the number one. I'm, let's say I'm the number one performer, and I never paid any attention uh, in analyzing how to trade, you know, which systems to choose based upon a sharp ratio. And then someone else comes along and says, "You know, you're the best trader ever, and you have a one zero sharp." Thank you. You know, it's it would be the gentlemanly thing to say. You don't have to get in some discussion about how sharp is crazy, but even not paying attention to sharp doesn't mean you're not going to have a good sharp. And I think that's all he was kind of saying is that. You know, I may not pay attention to it very much, but I do have a pretty nice one. And and do you have an opinion uh, as to why so many investors prefer Sharp with its limitations as the as the go to? Uh... It's it's logical. They don't embrace non normal distribution of trades and systematic approach and taking small losses and everything that we do. Uh, so, the key characteristic of what we do is would be to have a lower Sharp. Because we let profits run, and I think that that is uh, logical that they wouldn't. Uh, they're stuck in the old way of looking at things, and I think to a deg- to some degree to be a little critical of a one sharp, which I would have to be to be honest uh, for a trend follower. I think it's going out on a limb here. Probably going to be wrong, but uh, <clears throat> it's probably is, has a lot to do with the fact that you're doing vol targeting, and it's a pretend. Uh, risk measurement then if you're reducing, uh, taking off tremendously winning trades uh, and you're kind of coming up with a fake sharp um, because you could stay in that trade for another year, make a lot more money, have a nice drawdown at the end and look like you were riskier when you in fact were not. 
Yeah. What about what are your thoughts, uh, Moritz? Yeah, I have thoughts on that. Um, I, I think, you know, the reason the sharp ratio is used is just because for investors, it's as easy as breathing in and breathing out. You know, it's such a simple equation. Sometimes if you just, you know, shorten it down to the information ratio and you get rid of the um, risk-free rate, which is, a you know, an element of the sharp ratio, then it's just return over vol. That's very easy to calculate. Everybody's using it. So it just kind of like became the default, turned into this nice little default that people use. And then, you know, we know about the limitations and, you know, the normal distribution of returns that underlies it and all of that, you know, not being correct, but okay, let's still use that. The And, and there are other ratios and I must admit, I'm kind of like the same way. I do look at the Sharpe ratio. Yes, I know the flaws, but, you know, getting your head around the omega ratio and the Sortino ratio and this and that ratio, it's kind of like more difficult to put that in perspective and relate that and make apparent comparisons to other managers, say, right? Don't want to say they're not important or shouldn't be looked at. It's just, you know, the sharp ratio is, is so handy. There's one thing I want to mention on one ratio that I really like. It's by my friend, um, Jack Schwager, the gain to pain ratio. That's super simple to work with. And it doesn't use any standard deviation of anything. It just uses your, you know, returns as they come in. Simple ratio, great stuff. People should look at that. And, but there, I just want to add one thing about the sharp ratio. I'm getting, there's a couple of things that kind of like make me upset is <laughs> when I look at fact sheets and stuff. Well, one of the things in finance is when, you know, reporters, they speak about the, the performance of a stock market in points. The Dow is up 800 points or 1200 points or the S&P is up 60 points. And they say that's the greatest performance ever. What points is completely meaningless, right? Um, and the other thing is managers or whoever it is reporting shop ratios on their fact sheets um, with a negative numerator. So if you have a negative uh, rate of return, then the greater the denominator being the volatility, the higher your shop ratio, right? So if you are, uh, a, you know, an underperforming manager, you have negative returns, then increasing your vol increases your shop ratio, which is the silliness of the thing. So the sharp ratio isn't really defined um, if your return is negative. And yet even professionals, or maybe they want to call themselves professionals, but really aren't, produce fact sheets with, you know, sharp ratios shown, but returns being negative. And that just, you know, caused me to scratch my head. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and, and, and the, the, the funny thing to me in all of this discussion is that, again, um, a lot of people, of course, uh, certainly investors uh, that uh, I'm sure the three of us come across uh, are, you know, are searching for strategies with a high sharp ratio. At the same time, they uh, have no problem with equities. Well, I mean, equities, the long-term sharp of an equity market is around 0.4, which is not really that different from a long-term sharp of a trend follower. So... It's kind of funny and uh, of course we know why the the human biases in terms of our risk tolerance and, and all of that stuff, it gravitates us towards, uh, you know, high sharp uh, strategy. But uh, just to make a quick comment on the whole thing about a sharp of three, um, I just don't really believe that those strategies exist for for more than a short period of time. And, and, and uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean... A lot of people have the aim to deliver returns uh, that are equal to the risk, meaning a sharp of one. 
Um, but uh, of course, trend following is is a strategy that doesn't really cater towards a high shell ratio. And and but you still you can make a, a hell of a a decent compound return even with a sharp of uh, 0.5 or 0.6 uh, without a doubt. Um, Great stuff. Thanks, Brian, for your question. And um, just a quick plug. If you have questions for us, just send them uh, by email to info at toptradersonplug.com and we will uh, do our best to bring it up uh, the following weekend. Um, Sam? Sam uh, has uh, provided questions before. Appreciate it, Sam. Sam. Uh, this time, uh, Sam says, with the markets and mechanisms you all trade, assets tend to gap pretty frequently, whether it be daily or weekly. Coming from currencies, there are much fewer gaps. So I haven't thought much about this dynamic until now. I know you do not consider gaps as part of the strategy, i.e. just let the market do what it will uh, and live with it. However, I'm wondering if you all have any thoughts slash research on the impact of gaps. Do you think it washes out in the end? Do you think that there is or should be a gap in a certain direction more frequently than the other direction based on trend? Perhaps if an asset is in an uptrend, gaps typically favor the position rather than hinder it. Um, yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, questions, Sam. Um, Moritz, why don't we start with you? What do you think about gaps? Mind the gap. That's what you read in London. That is true. No, I have a really difficult... I'm thinking about a, um, you know, I want to give a constructive answer, but, you know, gaps are part of the data. They happen. They cannot be prevented. So I have to work with them. I don't, you know, mind them. And, you know, I don't, I don't love them. I don't hate them. It's... What can I say? I'm, I'm trying to uh, to find a good answer to that, but um, I really don't have one. Fair enough. Jerry, any thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> well, my understanding is gaps are sort of rare these days because the markets close and they open up 15 minutes later. Uh, That's right. But uh, gaps are great. <clears throat> and I think it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think we talked about this idea few weeks ago or last week where we we see this market and it's gotten away from us and it's really strong and I should I, I wish I was had bought it earlier and um, how hard is it to sort of get in there when the market is getting away from us so I think a gap should be celebrated and bought you know uh, if it's part of your system just great it's even better uh, you could have you know you could have gotten uh, a good fill and uh feel good about it or chase it and uh, kind of take that pain of having to buy even a higher price. So I think they're fine. And I don't think I know the answers. I haven't done the analysis of whether they happen more or less and up gaps happen in uptrends or whatever, but I don't think there's anything to sort of pay attention to. Right. And I think uh, I have nothing really to add to that. Um, but I will say, Sam, that, uh, uh, I think Jerry made a very important uh, point because you make the observation that you're not really used to gaps in, in currencies. And that is because I think currencies have, you know, probably been, uh, you know, always trading more or less 24 hours a day. So when you look at the the data, it doesn't really look like there was a gap. I think if you went back to when the futures markets, even for currencies, were uh, open outcry, you know, 10 hours a day or whatever, you probably would see more gaps. But nowadays, it's not that... Uh, uh, clear. 
And I think the more and more markets that are going the electronic route, um, you'll probably see less of that. And at the end of the day, the data is the data. And and I think, again, it's the the, the robustness of a trend-following strategy is that we can cope with that as well. Um, but I have no idea whether gaps occur more uh, in, in, in favor of the trend or not. But great question. Appreciate it, Sam. Next question is from Andrew. Andrew is um, based over here in in my neck of the world. Um, and uh, Andrew has a couple of questions that um, uh, are a little bit different to what we normally get. Um, one question is about the cash reserve. So it, it kind of ties a little bit into what we talked about earlier, uh, where we talked about the fact that we don't trade uh, much of the cash. Most of our cash actually sits in uh, in cash or in cash equivalent instruments such as short dated bonds, etc, etc. And so Andrew asks, first question is, on your cash reserves, do you increase your bond purchases based on trend following signals? Um, So let me start out uh, with this one. So in our case, Andrew, we, um, so some managers handle cash management, so to speak, in-house. Uh, that has been, um, you know, uh, that has been done for, for for decades. I would say that 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 was part of the role of the of the of the CTA was to also uh, make sure the cash was uh, secured. I think from our point of view, uh, the financial crisis changed a few things. Um, you saw that what seemed to be uh, quote unquote safe places to deposit your cash or, uh, you know, short dated um, money market funds uh, suddenly weren't as safe as uh, as as you had hoped for. Uh, and some funds were even frozen for a while, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So on our side, we employ a cash manager who is um, specialized in this field um, and uh, whose only role it is to first and foremost keep the cash uh, safe because it is the vast majority of the AUM we manage is cash that we don't need for margin purposes. So it's very important to keep it safe for our investors. So that's what they do. And they do that um, through investing in in hundreds of uh, line items um, within a certain set of rules that we have uh, given them. Um, So in their case, um, absolutely no, they would not look at any trend following signal uh, to um, to base their investments on and and also uh, the duration of these um, uh, you know bond purchases that they do uh, are pretty short so you wouldn't even be able to do trend following uh, on that um, but I guess what you could say what you could see is that say for example they're expecting lower bond prices so higher yields they might favor, uh, you know, floating rate notes uh, as part of their uh, investments um, rather than fixed uh, coupons. So things like that. Um, so anyways, we we don't apply any trend-following techniques uh, onto the cash management side. The second question, and I'll let, uh, I'll let uh, Jerry and, and Moritz uh, chime in on, on this as well. Um, but the second question is specifically you're asking, uh, how are you using swaps at done in relation to fees? Um, now, uh, and this comes, I think, from a previous uh, episode that you listened to where we talked about swaps. Um, we don't use swaps uh, as part of our trading. Um, 
but in certain structures such as uh, U.S. mutual funds, um, sometimes you need to swap the return back into the fund um, for for regulatory reasons, uh, such as, and I'm again, I'm, it's a little bit outside my comfort zone, um, but I think, for example, because we choose uh, to have 0% management fee, but we have a performance fee instead, I think the way you have to do it uh, uh, as far as I understand, is you have to swap the net return after performance fee into the mutual fund. There may be other ways of doing it, but I'm just saying I think that is why we choose to do that. But it shouldn't have any impact on performance per se. There might be a little cost uh, for, for the swap itself. Uh, in our offshore fund, we don't need to do it. Uh, in our Usage fund, you can either do, uh, if you want to trade commodities inside a usage fund, you can use, I think, swaps uh, for that. We don't uh, do that. We use structured notes, which is slightly different. Um, but there are certain regulatory constraints when you get onshore, either in the US or in Europe, that you have to adhere to, of course, and therefore sometimes you need to, to um, package some of your positions into either a swap or a structured note uh, to achieve that. So that's from our perspective. Um, Jerry Moritz, any any views on on the use of swaps? I mean, I should, maybe I should just before I say that, I should say that some managers, of course, use swaps to trade, meaning if they want to have a large exposure to a certain commodity where they can't do it in the futures markets, then they may use the swap market uh, to get that exposure. But that's completely different. And, and we, we, we don't get involved in any of that. Yeah, so short answer on the swaps. I'm not trading any OTC derivatives at the moment. Um, there's no Easter in place or anything like that. Uh, just want to mention that, you know, the firms that trade uh, OTC derivatives uh, swaps, for instance, um, most of those are now centrally cleared. So it's, you know, um, say, you know, less risky uh, in terms of counterparty risk than it used to be. Um, if you want to, you know, if you can say that that way. But um, as far as the cash goes, uh, managed it myself. And, you know, this is all short dated, uh, secured. Uh, bonds and bills uh, for the most part. And um, and that's about it. Cool. Any swaps on your side, uh, Jerry? No swaps, but uh, you did a good job of explaining that they get a negative, undeserved, negative reputation sometimes, deserved sometimes, but uh, they're a handy, useful tool to uh, that allows... For uh, in some situations are necessary. That uh, in the bottom line is it they're they're great sometimes because it's what's needed to get to improve your portfolio, which should contain a lot of yeah. CTAs and lots of different markets. So so I think that overall they're complicated, but very handy and useful. Sure. We're coming up to an hour and a half on our conversations. We appreciate uh, those of you who are still with us, but uh, the questions uh, have been uh, have been uh, plenty and 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 good ones. So we're going to round off with the final question, actually coming from Sam again. But I think it's a it's a it's a good question. It's a fun question, and I think it's uh, 
useful to make sure we get that done as well. And it goes actually to a specific uh, kind of trade that he uh, was asking us about. And I think we all were probably looking at our historical uh, trades uh, during the week to see uh, how, how, how it fits in. But the question is, in general, do you think there is a period that is too long term. As an example, you may recall the big downtrend in the euro that began in the summer slash fall of 2014. My longest time frame within my strategy would not have exited that position until June of 2017, about 2.75 years in that position. Using this as context, where does this fall on the spectrum when you think long term? Of course, this is an example uh, for a very strong trend that bottom out with very nice sideways consolidation before rising, really ideal. Um, this also means that the long trade on the euro for much of 2017 and into 2018 was only a small profit on this time frame. So I think um, I think we all probably checked in and looked at how we handled the that particular trade to see whether Sam is just way too long or whether, in fact, it's pretty normal to have a trade like that. So, Moritz, Jerry, what um, what do you think about this example? I think it's uh, pretty normal to have a trade like that. Um, I see trades like this, uh, multi-year trades, two, three-year trades. So, um, it's uh, it, it's part of my system. So, I don't think it's unusual what Sam is describing there. And and to be honest, you know, the longer the trade lasts, uh, the better it normally is. So I don't mind them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I like that. That was a great trade. And I, Sam and I have similar systems in that regard, on, at least on that particular trade. Uh, you can just sort of look, you know, get a general indication of what, uh, what he was looking at just by overlaying some moving averages or breakouts. And so I think that, at least guessing on that one, it looks like, that's a fine way to trade. I don't think that I would um, uh, be able to pass judgment on that trade just by saying, well, yes or no, is it a good trade? Because I was in for over two years, that same parameter set might, in the next euro trade, maybe the trade will last a week or a month. It's hard, you know, it's hard to say. So it's, if the computer, if the back test gives you some good indication that at that sort of patience and time frame and given the market that a, a possibility of volatility and rallying and then going back down and which didn't probably occur in this trade as he describes it and that's what you got to go by uh, the characteristics of following that great system they're interesting it's just trivia though yeah, absolutely. And uh, from our point, point of view, um, yeah, I mean, we were in that trade more or less at the same time. We didn't have the same exposure throughout that trade. And and uh, there certainly came a time, I think, in, in around the summer of 2016, where it was pretty close to... Uh, to, uh, to 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 getting out um, before we saw a little bit more of a, a downwards push in, in the euro and so on and so forth. But no, I mean, I agree. These are some of the... Uh, uh, usually the better trades uh, when they can last uh, that long. So thanks everyone, uh, Sam, Andrew, Brian, Woody, uh, and John for your questions. Keep them coming. Info at toptradersonplug.com uh, is where you uh, can send them in. Um, 
I'm just going to quickly run through the performance uh, as we have it so far in the month of April. Um, this is as of Thursday. Uh, so yesterday, I think, was a pretty flat uh, day, uh, at least if I look at our stuff. But uh, beat up 50 index, flat for the month, up 1.67 for the year. SockGen CTA index, um, down 14 basis points for the month of April, up 1.77 for the year. SockGen trend index, down quarter percent for April, up 2.63 for the year. Sokjin short term uh, short term traders index down almost a percent uh, so far in April uh, and down 2.63 for the year so still struggling a bit and then the bridge alternative index down 19 basis points um as of Wednesday I noticed they had not updated and then uh up 73 basis points for the uh, for the year so far any um any final thoughts um, from you, Jerry Moritz? Other than you're going to be watching some basketball, Jerry, in a few hours. Yes, a few hours basketball. Hopefully, we advance, and I'll be here Monday night as well. So, uh, but I enjoyed it, and uh, this—it's uh, hard to believe we can go an hour and a half um, yeah. and still have more in the tank. I'm, a, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> but let's just call it call it a call it a, a game right now. Yeah, absolutely. And best of luck for the game tonight. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Any? Do you want to come with any of? Have you come up with new taglines or slogans that we need to uh, we need to hear today? No, but I'm I'm, I'm game focused uh, today as well. We have uh, you know a soccer important soccer game happening uh, in uh, one and a half hours from now, which is uh, Bayern Munich versus Dortmund. So this is probably one of the decisive games of this uh, year's Bundesliga season and uh, one of those must-watch type of things. So looking forward to that. And other than that, well, no, not changing. Happy trading. Do you remember yours, Terry? Or... Of course not. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, if you like what you heard, please help us uh, by um, giving us a rating, a review on iTunes because it really does uh, help others discover the show. Uh, and of course, if you wouldn't mind, share uh, this episode with a like-minded friend. Uh, one share is all we ask for. From Jerry, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week uh, on the Systematic Investor Series. And in the meantime, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.